Uh, and thanks for having me uh, read to you. I appreciate it. Um, I really feel at home here. Um, I've been uh, just sleeping in, taking naps, having baths. Uh, and um, uh, in New York, I, I don't really... Um, I like to stay in, and uh, I like to just sit quietly somewhere. And um, but here, I actually feel like I want to socialise. Um, like I look forward to lunch, and uh, I don't want to come too early because then my secret will be given away that I'm eager. Um, so I kind of hang back um, and then miss it. Um, but uh, it's really a, I wasn't prepared for what a profoundly um, gentle and nurturing atmosphere I'd find. Um, I, I go to some uh, residencies, but this one is, I think, is particular, particularly uh, su superb and conducive to work. Um, and when not working, I don't feel like I'm wasting time. Um, so thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So um, if you'll permit me, um, I'm going to read you for 40 minutes. So I'm going to take off my watch and watch it. The, the first... I'm sorry, do you mind that? I just, I would like... No, I quite like it, actually. So I'm going to read to you from uh, a novel that came out this year uh, called Everything Beautiful Began After. Um, the title I wanted for it was... Uh, uh, what was the title? The Greek Affair. But my editor said, it, it sounds like a spy novel. Um, or anyone who's partners had an affair will like never read it um, so um, I, you know I, I've learned I learned a lesson a few years ago that I, there was a particularly successful man that I admired he was very talented and he was a tailor um, and uh, in the 1960s and I asked his uh, one of his family members what happened to him and she said he couldn't listen to anyone it had to be his own way all the time and she said in the cutting room that was that was ex acceptable, but in the in the boardroom, he he wouldn't listen, and so he he never really was able to continue his his you know experimentation in a commercial way. And so, I learned from him to learn to listen to people, and to listen to to people who know about things that I don't know about, which is actually quite hard because as a writer you have control of everything. It's um, it's like it's like um. It's like playing The Sims on a computer. Have you played that video game? You get to like control people. Um, I've since moved up to Grand Theft Auto, which is much more satisfying. Um, they should make a, a, a Grand Theft Auto Republican Party, where you get to like I'm not gonna. You have carte blanche. Anyway, so I'm going to read a little from the novel, and then I'm going to read some. Some things I've been working on here, which is this. Prologue.
Everything was already here, and I'm the last to be born. Small questions fill her mind like birds circling. Skeleton trees stripped of their flesh by frost are changing again. Green tips harden at last year's final moments. She waits at the wild end of the garden, leaning on a gate in her coat, the one she wouldn't wear. But now everything about it seems beautiful, especially the buttons, small tusks discoloured by a thousand meals, the mystery of pockets. At the farthest end of the wood, where no one comes, is where her life begins and ends. A sea of new grass will soon flood the fields beyond the gate. It's her birthday too, ten years old, suddenly allowed to venture to the far gate alone, old enough to lie awake in her bed, listening to the applause of rain on the window. Even her dreams are older, hair cascading, she digs with her father for treasure in faraway countries. Then fleeing the storm of growing knowledge, she escapes into mourning and forgets. Her father is in the woods looking for her. Dinner is ready and waits in the pot to be eaten. Her mother is lighting candles with a single flame conjured by her eyes. Her father is out, calling the name she's been given. But her real name is known only by the change in light that comes without sound, and by worms pushing up through the soaked crust of soil. They glisten and swing their heads in blind agreement. Her father raises them by tapping the ground with a stick. They think it's rain. Her father used to pretend he'd found her in the garden, that she wasn't his daughter, but some creature of nature, that she appeared in the wake of a few early daffodils, that he pulled her from the ground the way he finds all ancient ruins with luck and enthusiasm. Her mother has long hair. She ties it up behind her head in a soft nest. Her neck bears the silence and freshness of dawn. Years have spun lines around her eyes. Her mouth is small and moves with the promise of kindness. Her father said this morning that snow is coming, but in her mind it's falling fast. She can't stop it. Soon everything she thinks will be covered by what she hopes will happen. And at midnight she will peep through lifted corners and marvel at the glowing shroud. Sometimes when she cries out in the night, her father comes in. He holds her hand and rubs it until her eyes begin to soak and slowly she sinks, leaving behind small questions that float on the surface of her life until morning. She knows she came from them. She knows she was held aloft, a hot screaming ball with tiny arms flapping. There was blood. She knows she grew inside. She knows that people grow each other. Once, there was a tree upon which she found something growing, something shuffling inside a small silken belly webbed to the rough bark, a white sack spun from fairy thread. She visited her magic child with devotion. She spoke quietly and hummed songs from school. Words had their finest moments dissolved to sentiment. She couldn't be sure, but her child in its white womb was growing and sometimes turned its body when she warmed it with her breath. She imagined one day a surprised face peering at her from inside. She would peel her glowing baby from the tree, give it milk and a matchbox crib until it was big enough to sleep in her room, and like all children, confess everything with questions. She imagined its tiny body wriggling in her hand, the black dot of an open mouth, but then one evening after supper, she went to her child on the tree and found the chrysalis was empty. 
the dreamlike skin, the gossamer veil ripped open in her absence. She waited until dusk, until crows barked solemnly at that distant fire beyond their understanding. Her eyes were red too. She, slow, she walked slowly through the garden to the house. Just as she was too afraid to tell anyone she had borne a child, she was now too proud to share her grief. Later on, in summer, as she lay against the tree, her heart full of emptiness, a butterfly landed on her bare knee. Its wings rose and fell, two eyes staring at her in their blindness, her eyes staring blindly back. Nature's victory is seamless. She can hear her father now. His voice is clear and sharp. It rings through the damp trees. There was a time before he met her mother. It was before she began. It was a shadow world with no significance, a world that was breathing but without form. She hadn't even be, been thought of. She was dead without having died. As her father calls out to her now at the edge of night, she wonders how he found her mother. Did he call her name in the dark woods? Did it echo through him before he knew like some lost science of attraction? She will ask tonight over dinner for the story of what happened. Do we love before we love? She knows her mother fell, not from the sky like threads of lightning silently over hills, but in a place called Paris, her camera in pieces, spots of blood on the steps. Her father is very close now. She considers falling to the earth, but instead remembers her name, a hook upon which she is carried through the world. On the walk back home through the dusk, she's going to ask her father for the story of how he met her mother. All she knows is that someone fell and that everything beautiful began after. Book One, The Greek Affair. Forget what I said about compromise. I'm going to read a few pages from here, from this section, uh, that apply to... The main character is an artist, she's a painter. One. For those who are lost, there will always be cities that feel like home. Places where lonely people can live in exile of their own lives, far from anything that was ever imagined for them. Athens has long been a place where lonely people go, a city doomed to forever impersonate itself, a city wrapped by cruel bands of road, where the thunder of traffic is a sound so constant it's like silence. Those who live within the city itself live within a cloud of smoke and dust, for like the wild dogs who riddle the back streets with hanging mouths, the fumes linger, dispersed only for a moment by a breath of wind or the aromatic burst from a pot when the lid is raised. To stare Athens in the face is to peer into the skull of a temple. Set high above the city on a rock, tourists thread the crumbling passageways, shuffle across shrinking cakes of marble worn by centuries of curiosity. Outside imagination, the Parthenon is nothing more than stacked rubble, and such is the secret to life in a city ravaged by the enthusiasm for its childhood. Athens lives in the shadow of what it cannot remember, of what it could never be again. And there are people like that too, and some of them live in Athens, 
You can see them on Sunday mornings with bags of fruit, walking slowly through the maze of rising concrete, adrift in private thoughts, anchored to the world by unfamiliar shadows. Most of the apartments in Athens have balconies. On very hot days, the city closes its million eyes as awnings fall, drowning the figures below in dreams of shade. From a distance, the white plaster and stone of the buildings glow, and those approaching Athens from the sea on hulking boats witness only a rising plain of glistening white, details guarded by the canopy of sharp sunlight that sits over the city until evening, when the city slows, and then a quick blush that deepens into purple, veils the sea, becomes night. In this city of a thousand villages, families huddle on balconies with their bare feet on stools. Lonely men dot the cafes hunched over backgammon. They stare at the ends of their cigarettes, lost in the glow of remembering. It's a city where people worship, worship and despise one another in the same breath. For the lost souls of this world, Athens is a place not to find themselves, but to find others like them. In Athens you will never age. Time is viewed in terms of what has been, not what is to come. Everything has already happened and cannot happen again, even though it does. Modern Athens buzzes around truth that everyone believes but no one can remember. As a visitor, you must simply find your own way through the foul, dry streets where dogs follow at a distance close enough to be menacing and walls still gape where smashed by missiles of ancient wars and the lingering smoke and bustle, the strange music of the Laterna machine, the forever pushing of strangers. The museums are crammed with moments that went missing from history, that are impossible now to put back, that were discovered by the thump of a plough, or hoisted up from wells, or dragged in tangled fishing nets along the seabed. Mossy heads, stone hands teeming with barnacles, rotten oars rowed by the current in the dream of where they were going. The beauty of artefacts is in how they reassure us. We're not the first to die. But those who seek only reassurance from life will never be more than tourists, seeing everything and trying to possess what can only be felt. Beauty is the shadow of imperfection. Before Rebecca moved to Greece to develop as a painter, she flew around the world, serving meals and drinks to people who found her beauty soothing. Thousands possessed the memory of her neckline, the deep blue of her uniform, the smooth edges of her navy heels, a tight bouquet of crimson hair. She moved in straight lines, always smiling, a mechanical swan wrapped in blue cotton. In the mornings before work, she tied up her hair in a mirror, it was soft and always falling. She held bobby pins in her mouth and then applied each one like a sentence she would never say. Her hair was dark red, as though perpetually ashamed. It was an effort for her to talk, and so like many shy people, Rebecca found a face in the mirror and a voice that went with it. She used them like tools to make sure it was tea that was desired and not coffee, or whether Monsieur or Madame might like another pillow. The real Rebecca lay beneath, smuggled on board each flight inside her uniform, waiting for the moment to reveal herself. But such a moment never happened, and her true self, by virtue of neglect, turned from the world and slipped away without anyone noticing. 
though her work did have its moments of salvation. She paid particular attention to children travelling alone. She often sat with them on her breaks, held their hands, folded soft ropes of hair into braids, watched a piece of paper come alive in lines. Her dream was to become an artist, to be loved for moments beyond her own life. She'd spend her own childhood with her grandfather and twin sister, waiting for someone to come home, but who never did. And then suddenly it was too late, and the person she waited for became a stranger she would no longer recognize. So that's the beginning of the novel, and that's a, a character called Rebecca. Um, and uh, something very strange happened a few weeks ago. My agent called me and said, I've got something odd to tell you. And I said, what is it? And he said, I've had a sort of sex letter. I said, that's great news. Why is that weird? Well done. What did you do? And uh, he said, no, no, it's, it's um, from someone in Holland. And I said, it's even better. Because like, they live with it. If they write a sex letter, it must be something really, you know. And he said, no, it's for you. And I was like, oh, no. I said, send it to me immediately. Um, and... Uh, so it was, from a, it was from somebody who was writing a pornographic novel and wanted to use Rebecca, uh, which is odd, isn't it? Someone wants to, yeah, I wrote to ask permission to use my main character as like a sex star in his pornographic novel. <laughs> Typical Holland, right? What did you say? I said don't answer. <laughs> if it's to be, well, fingers crossed. I'm just kidding. Um, so, but it's funny because, you know, they're made up people, but really they're not, are they? Um, you know, when I was a child, I would wake up sometimes to go to the bathroom um, on those nights, lucky enough, where I did wake up and, uh, and uh, not wake up in Louisiana, you know. And uh, so I'd go to the bathroom and then if I saw like, like teddy bears or like dolls, I'd think, oh God, what are they doing out? And I don't know if you did this, but children often find that they have to sort of tuck things in, like tuck uh, objects in. And I feel like as writers and artists, we have maintained that level of uh, attentiveness. And, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever seen a film called Fanny and Alexander by Ingmar Bergman. And there's a, in the, it's a very long film. I tried to get my daughter into it. And... Uh, I, it, you know, cost me five lunches at McDonald's, uh, and then for the first half, and um, it's not a Scottish restaurant either. Um, so, what happened? Yeah. So, in the beginning of that film, there's a gentleman who, um, there's a, the character who is telling a story about a chair, and he puts a chair on a table. He talks about the magic, significant magic chair, about how it was uh, a Chinese chair and the emperor's, and then he goes to like he starts hitting it, and the other children just couldn't be bothered. And one little girl says, "Don't you dare do that!" And the old man says, "Thank you," because he's a storyteller. You see, so I don't know why I told you that. Um, <laughs> Okay, so you thought you were off the hook, but no, there's more. Um, this is a, a novel I've been working on, and, um, and I recently uh, was watching a documentary about Samuel Beckett, and he said, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, he said, uh, writers waste people's time with too many words. He said, I'm trying to say what I need to say in as few words as possible. He said, my last work will be a blank piece of paper. And I thought, my novel is very short, and I'm going to say that to my editor when I turn it in. 
The novel, the new work is called The Illusion of Separateness. And I was reading a hippie magazine, and because um, I secretly would like to, to, to be and live like that. Um, and uh, um, I'm this close. Um, and uh, it's, it was, it's a wonderful magazine, and there was a quote in there, and it said, um, it, said it was from a, a monk who lives in France, and the quote was, um, we're here, we exist, to overcome the illusion of our separateness. We're here to overcome the illusion of our separateness. I thought that's really amazing. I, really, I thought about it quite a long time. And, uh, and then I, I, um, I made an appointment with some doctors, not psychiatrists, but um, uh, genetic, geneticists, to talk about uh, you know, DNA. And you know, we're at 7 billion people right in the world. And so 60 years ago, there were 3.5 billion. So apparently 110 billion people have lived in the history of Homo sapiens. And 3% uh, of those people, of those 110 billion, are alive today. Um, so we've doubled in, in uh, and uh, because somebody was telling me how violent New York is, and I said, it's not violent at all. Look how many people there are. And then I thought, boy, seven, seven billion, and, you know, there's as much conflict as there was before. That's not bad, because it means that three and a half billion are living peacefully. Do you see what I mean, if there was as much conflict as... So I thought, well, that's, that's sort of a, a great statistic, isn't it? And... Um, and uh, naive maybe, but um, and then I was talking to the geneticist, and he said, "Well, he said, you know, two, three thousand years ago, there were only a few million." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "And fifty thousand years ago, there were this many, and it, the number just kept going down and down and down." And he said, "So we're all related." And I thought, "Oh God, that explains so much." Um, but um, so scientifically, what the monk was saying you know, had some grounding. I'm going to read just a few little... It's, it's, I've never read it before, so there'll be bits that I'll trip up on, if you'll forgive me. And there'll be bits I wish I'd never said. This is the first chapter. It's only four pages. The caretaker's name is Martin. He works all hours at a retirement community on the outskirts of Los Angeles and is often mistaken for a resident himself. It would be easier if people knew how old he was, but the conditions of his birth are a mystery. When Martin was eight years old, his parents seated him at the kitchen table with a glass of milk and told him the story of a baby they once found under a bridge in Paris. It was a cold day, they said. The war was on. The path home along the river was strewn with broken glass and piles of rubbish. The bridges smelled of urine. When they passed some rags and a heap of dirty towels, Martin's mother said she saw something move. The streets above rumbled with passing tanks. Martin's father told her not to bother, that it was probably just an unwanted litter. The Seine was high and rough that day, and must have drowned the baby's cries. They stayed as long as they could, taking turns to hold the child. 
Martin's father said they didn't know what to do. The sound of the river filled him with dread. On the street above, intermittent bursts of gunfire, but they were used to it. At dusk, they wrote on the ground with chalk and on the inside walls of the bridge. In the days that followed, no one came, and then rain washed away their address. His father stood by the window and confessed to the garden how they'd waited two years, until two years after the war, to do anything official. We were, we were just so afraid, Martin's father confessed. And selfish, his mother added. Her tears made circles on the tablecloth. Martin looked at her hands. Her nails were smooth with rising moons. He imagined the baby in his own arms. He imagined pulling it from the towels in the bathroom and the praise he would get for finding something alive. When he asked what happened to the baby, his parents stopped talking. Martin stared at the milk until it made him cry. His mother left the table and returned a moment later with a bottle of chocolate syrup. She poured some into his glass and swirled it with a tall spoon. Our love for you, she said, will always be stronger than any truth. They held him very close, and he was allowed to sleep in their bed for a few days until he missed his toys and the routine in which he had grown to recognize himself fully. Martin grew up never quite understanding why waiting two years to apply for adoption papers had upset his mother so much. But then, in his early twenties, as a college freshman, smoking in bed with a lover, the truth dropped into his lap. It was snowing. They ordered Chinese food. A good film was about to start on television. As Martin reached for the ashtray, the sheet uncovered his body. His legs were muscular. She lay her cheek against them. He told her about high school, two track records still unbroken. And then she said she'd been wondering why, unlike other European men, Martin was circumcised. He stopped attending classes. He devoted all his time to research. He was there when the library opened and worked until closing. He requested books that had never been checked out. Then he dropped out of college and went home. He worked at the family cafe. He served customers, but sometimes felt lightheaded at the endless list of names, each one a small voice, each one a thumping heart, but louder, deeper, and more permanent now in its silence. He was reborn into the nightmare of truth. The idea of it was more than he could bear. People hiding in the sewers, women giving birth in the dark, surrounded by damp and filth, then suffocating their babies so as not to give the others away. Families ripped apart like bits of paper thrown into the wind. He had not been abandoned, but hidden. And he burned with love for people he could not imagine. So that's about 90% um, of chapter one. Um, and uh, that is, um, that's present day uh, Anaheim, which if you've been there is where the Los Angeles Rams used to play, who are sadly no more. Are they? Okay, this is the, all right. So uh, I really love football. I dreamed of becoming an NFL player. It's not a joke. 
Uh, uh, it, it really should be. Um, I realized that my only chance of playing in the NFL would be to hide in the pockets of the quarterback and then bite the legs of like people as they went by. Um, So now I'm going to attempt an accent, so please forgive me. Whenever I, I read a book to my daughter with an accent, after the first page she says, please don't do that. Uh, um, I, I explained recently to her what drunkenness is, because we saw somebody drunk. And uh, she asked a lot of questions, and I told her about how it works, and addiction, and we talked about drugs. And, um, and then the next morning, she ran into my room and said, how long does it last? And I said, what? Being drunk. She said, yeah, how long? And I said, a few hours, normally. And so she must have been awake, thinking that if you got drunk, that's it. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I hear sighs of relief. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you a choice. Would you like to hear a story about an old bouncer, um, a blind girl, or a uh, an old man living alone in Manchester? Bouncer. Bouncer. Okay. Mr. Baxter did not like people very much. And so when he was woken up one night by someone shouting in the street, it was with more annoyance and concern that he untangled himself from the sheets, felt for his glasses, and shuffled quietly to the far window of the flat, which he always kept open. Mr. Baxter was the only private resident on a London street of men's tailors and barbershops. His small house, once home to the St. James clergy, was built in 1762 on a narrow hill against the back wall of the church. Whether by accident or inspired planning, the church sometimes appeared to embrace the little house, with two arms conjured from an arrangement of shadows. After 200 years of continuous dwelling, the clergy relocated to the suburbs, and 35A German Street was sold to an American business tycoon because the church itself was collapsing. During renovation, an unexploded bomb from World War II was found in a sewer well. German Street was evacuated for three hours. The old barbers stood awkwardly in aprons on Piccadilly, remembering the many days of falling bombs when bodies washed through the underground tunnels like heavy dolls and people shared bars of chocolate or took turns on a cigarette. The business tycoon, Bert Gidding, gave the house to Mr. Baxter some years ago. Children would consider them both to be old men, but there's 20 years between them. The tycoon seldom leaves his estate in East Sussex. His wife was American too. She was quite small and talked fast. Mr. Baxter used to work for them. That's how he got the house. The tycoon's wife, Annette, died 10 years ago, and Mr. Baxter was a pallbearer. Bert has lived alone since her death. 
Mr. Baxter has tried calling him sometimes to check in, but no one ever answers. At the funeral, Bert told Mr. Baxter that he lives now only for his blind granddaughter in New York. Mr. Baxter had lived in the house for 17 years and was known to his commercial neighbors only by sight. He passed their windows every day on his way home from St. James's Park and caught their attention with a falling trouser hem or the collar on his raincoat sitting too far off his neck. Despite his age, Mr. Baxter was still heavy and muscular with enormous hands that he kept awkwardly at his sides as though they were props of some kind. His eyes were deep blue and quicker than his body, which made him appear more nervous than he actually was. There were no longer any traces of brown in his hair, and his bones ached occasionally depending on the weather. When the rain was too heavy to go out, Mr. Baxter would often set a chair beside the window. There were usually people in the street below, and the line of shop windows down German Street glowed with vague promise. He knew each shop by the sound of its bell, and he listened to the corner flower seller calling out every morning in Latin, the low thunder of buses idling at red lights on Piccadilly. When the shops closed, Mr. Baxter sat in the dark. Small women came and vacuumed with chrome hoovers. Then they sat in their aprons and unwrapped sandwiches. One of the cleaners was pregnant. In the morning, after a few hours of sleep on the settee, Mr. Baxter drank his tea standing up. Window cleaners and their sons sloshed along German Street with buckets and rags. Sometimes they whistled, and the sound fell from their mouths like silver thread. Men smoked and unloaded vans, while others scavenged through piles of rubbish. Chefs chatted on phones in their kitchen whites, while student waiters chained bicycles with plastic bags tied over the seat. When it was time for his walk in St. James's Park, Mr. Baxter liked to find an empty bench that wasn't too damp or had been soiled by birds. Clouds passed above in lines of white shoulders. Mr. Baxter wondered where they were going. He stared at them the way an illiterate stares at words in a sentence. There was a deep lake in the middle of St. James's Park. Long ago, when you could smell London before you saw it, and people lived in damp, straw-roofed houses on London Bridge, it was common to bring your wishes to the lake and then cast them like nets into that mystery. Children still gather at the edge of the water. They often stand quite still, their eyes fixed with more feeling than sight. Sometimes Mr. Baxter lingered at the lake, but with nothing to wish for, simply stared at the swans folding their wings, or women in headscarves tossing crumbs from their pockets for the ducks. He secured his coat at the waist by knotting a belt. The coat was very old. Sometimes he wore it over his dressing gown to bed. There were stains around the hem, and also at the front where he'd missed the toilet. He wore glasses to see. They were square with gold frames and a brown tint to each lens that was once, once fashionable. Sometimes a flake of his skin would lodge on the lens. There was a time when Mr. Baxter was quite fashionable, quite outgoing, quite a known face in London. But that was long ago, and the man woken by someone screaming in the street below his window. The man who shuffled across the kitchen from his settee bed looked older than he actually was.
The person screaming below the window was shouting in Jamaican patois. He was about 16 years old and pulled at his short dreadlocks as though he expected them to come off. Puddles had hardened into ice. Mr Baxter wondered if he might slip on one. Then he listened with both hands spread on the kitchen table like a great pianist trying to understand what he could so clearly hear. A couple strolling home from Franco's restaurant stopped talking and crossed to the other side of the road. It would have been much quieter in the small bedroom at the back of Mr. Baxter's house, but for years he had slept every night on the settee. The expensive floral cotton sheets and pillowcases purchased one summer afternoon at Liberty lay smooth and undisturbed, like an envelope sealed long ago upon a letter that was never written. When the man returned to German Street two nights later, Mr. Baxter listened from his pillow in a sort of daze. It was bitterly cold. A string of black cabs roared up German Street, their heavy diesel engines making the windows rattle on one side. This can't go on, Mr. Baxter thought. I was in the middle of a bloody dream. He folded back his sheets and sat on the edge of the settee. All I'm asking for is a bit of peace, he thought, fumbling for his glasses. And now I've got some mad bastard out there. The pubs were still open. The sound of people walking echoed through his apartment like disorderly music. Voices, too, animated by wine and the excitement of a fierce cold, filled his head, casting his thoughts back to other versions of himself when the web of Christmas lights strung across Piccadilly illuminated what he had rather than what he'd lost. When Mr. Baxter unlatched the window and cautiously peered down at the figure for a third night, he noticed a plastic bag of clothes. The arm of a sweater reached out as if trying to escape. Mr. Baxter shook his head in reproach. Some people, he said to himself, are a bleeding nuisance. Then, for a week, the man didn't come, and German Street was a place of general quiet. It was so cold that the government told people not to go out. The demand for coal and wood was unprecedented. Elderly people were found dead at home, sitting upright in their chairs. Mr. Baxter spent the week laying awake, wondering where he was. Then he lay awake wondering who he was. The night he came back, Mr. Baxter pulled on his dressing gown and hurried to the window. It was still cold. The man outside wore neither gloves nor hat. What an idiot, Mr. Baxter thought. His own bloody fault if he dies of cold out there. The few people who were out hurried home in clouds of their own desire. Working men emptied bins or wheeled cages of cheese and artichokes into Fortnum and Mason, then roared off in vans. And then a few shops away, the sound of laughing. Mr. Baxter leaned out to see. In the distance, a woman and a man struggling to walk in a straight line. Then the woman sat down in the middle of the road. The man pulled on her arm. When a car entered German Street going too fast, the man below Mr. Baxter's window looked over at the couple and shouted, Car! 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 His voice was lighter, like a child's, when every statement is really a question. And there was awkwardness in his concern for others. Somehow understanding, the drunks lifted their heads and carried their bodies away from the dazzle of headlamps. 
They watched the car roar up German Street for a few moments as if trying to make sense of it, as if cut off from their thoughts by a fog. And then it disappeared, bound for other lives less fortunate. A line of pigeons huddled against one another in the corner of Mr. Baxter's roof, cooing softly, their feathers turned up against the wind. After the drunks went away, the man resumed shouting in Jamaican patois. Mr. Baxter noticed a fork on the kitchen table. He rested his fingers on it. Many years ago, Mr. Baxter's father would sometimes wake him up very late at night. He dressed with his eyes half closed, but fully aware what was going to happen. He was only a child, but understood that it would have been worse not to go. Under his bed was a box of toy cars, a cricket bat, a few broken airfix Spitfire models. There was also a pennant that was frayed, but still meant a great deal to him. He'd won it at the seaside throwing coconuts. After going downstairs, Mr. Baxter sat squarely in front of his father at the kitchen table, trying not to blink, and slowly hardening into the statue of a boy, so that when he did blink and the fork came down on the back of his hands repeatedly, there was only a vague feeling that parts of his body were on fire. Sometimes his father would laugh, or smash a bottle, or split a cupboard door with his elbow. Sometimes he would take everything out of the fridge and leave it on the floor. The next day, the teachers wanted to know why Charlie Baxter couldn't hold his pencil, why the backs of his hands were black and yellow. He was made to stand in a corner. It was their secret, and in some beautiful child way, he felt that his father respected him for keeping it. He went back to bed. It was warm under the blankets. His feet felt hot under the covers. He thought for a minute about what had happened outside with the speeding car, Having no curtains, streetlight washed over his things and pooled against furniture that blocked its reach. Before falling asleep, Mr. Baxter wondered if anger is just another way of crying. In the morning, he cooked a breakfast that was much larger than usual. He put the remains on a plate in the refrigerator. Then he washed the frying pan and hung it above the sink. It dripped into a tea towel that was folded into a square for the sole purpose of catching drops. On his walk that day, Mr. Baxter noticed more birds than usual. They congregated at one side of the pond where park officials had broken the ice with heavy sticks. Mr. Baxter stood for some time on the narrow bridge that stretched over the lake. On one side, up the blowing bare trees and brown frozen water, was Buckingham Palace. On the other side, a slow rise of grey marble into Whitehall, a few towers with peaks, two flags snapping in the breeze like squares of blood. It was Mr. Baxter's favourite place to stand and think. The view had not changed for centuries, despite love and death, war, hot summers, disappointment, wind, and quiet days of nothing much. Three nights later, Mr. Baxter stirred a pot of tea and listened at the window. The moon was out. Why hadn't someone called the police and reported a lunatic disturbing the peace? It was now so irritating that he wanted to throw his mug of tea at the man's head. Bits of the mug on the ground like heavy chalk. He imagined pulling the man's arms off like clay, and then his legs, and then his head, stuffing them into his black bag of clothes, and then tossing it into the Thames. 
For the first time in many years, Mr. Baxter felt the long-buried violence bubbling to the surface of his life. But while considering hypothetically an extreme course of action that he would never take, a bottle struck and shattered against the wall of St. James's Church. Mr. Baxter looked out and saw another bottle flash with streetlight, then land silently on the man's bag of clothes. Three men stormed across the road, fists spinning. Mr. Baxter stood, shaking, his feet half in his slippers. He looked desperately about his kitchen for something among his cutlery and chipped pans. Then his lips tightened and Mr. Baxter knotted the string on his dressing gown. By the time he got down to the street, there were clothes everywhere and the, old ma the man was a ball on the ground. When a heavy old man in a dressing gown and slippers suddenly appeared, the three men stopped kicking. For a moment, just the sight of Mr. Baxter seemed to deter them. Then one came at him with a broken bottleneck. But Mr. Baxter was once quite a dangerous man. He grew up in the East End. For a few years, he was Twiggy's bodyguard, then a business tycoon's, then private events, then nightclubs. He stopped working 17 years ago after waking up in the Royal Free Hospital. Who got me? he said to the nurse. But it was painful even to chuckle. No one got you, Rambo, she said. You had a heart attack. Later, she brought flowers wrapped in newspaper and arranged them herself in the vase. Some nights, she stayed a bit later and read to him. No one had ever read to him. It was like a world within a world, and he felt free of his troubles. About this time, he had another visitor, Bert Gidding, the man who'd given him the house the man whose family he'd saved from a kidnap attempt. At first, Bert brought flowers and something sweet to chew on. They would chat for a while and then leave. After visiting regularly for a couple of weeks, Mr. Gidding pulled his chair up next to Mr. Baxter. There's something I would like to tell you, he said. Mr. Baxter was very surprised. There was a softness in his voice he'd never heard before. Did you know, Bert said, that I once held a gun in someone's mouth? No, sir, Mr. Baxter said. I wouldn't have imagined it. I fought in the war, Charlie, Mr. Gidding said. I was shot down over Belgium. Oh, I'd no idea, sir. I've never spoken of it, not even with Annette. Mr. Baxter felt very sorry for his former employer and in that moment realized that no amount of riches can soothe the human heart. Can I tell you, Charlie, can I tell you what happened? Down on German Street, Mr. Baxter's body moved with the old knowledge. He was slower, but still mighty in his reach, and the one who came at him was soon on the pavement. When the other two lurched, Mr. Baxter, who took a punch in the side of the head before breaking an attacker's nose with a light jab, the third attacker stood facing Mr. Baxter, snarling, then backed away quickly when he noticed a figure in the distance along German Street waving an enormous pair of scissors. After the three attackers ran off, the man on the ground uncurled like some rare plant but hid his face. The tailor put down his garment scissors and introduced himself as Colin. Then he pointed in the direction of his shop. From, from New and Lingwood, first floor, shoes to order and ready to wear. Mr. Baxter judged him to be about the same age as himself, 
but with a fuller head of hair and a slight South African accent. Charlie Baxter. I know, Colin said, still trying to catch his breath. The menace of Mile End. Mr Baxter flushed and tightened the string on his dressing gown. The man on the ground leaned on his hands and vomited. He, he's the one been making all this noise, Colin said. Then he looked around at all the clothes. I, I suppose we'd better pick these up. Give them to me, Mr Baxter. I'll fold them back into the bag. After that, Mr Baxter scooped the man into his arms and carried him upstairs. Colin watched in wonder as Mr Baxter removed pieces of glass from the man's face with a pair of tweezers. Then he ran hot water in the sink and opened a bottle of witch hazel. After finding an old roll of bandage in a cupboard, he wrapped the boy's wounds with the gentleness of snow. The kettle didn't take long to boil. When Mr Baxter went to get a blanket from the back bedroom, Colin took off his apron and confessed to the boy how Mr Baxter once, quite famously, disarmed three men who were trying to kidnap a business tycoon and his family. They all drank tea until the windows glowed with a dull blue. They also ate honey biscuits from Fortnum and Mason. On the tin, animals played musical instruments. The young man didn't say much, but accepted each cup of tea with both hands. He also kept looking back to check that his bag of clothes hadn't moved from the hall. Mr Baxter, most of all, liked the way the man's eyes looked. He had a delicate profile, with high, almost regal cheekbones that captured light on their descent. And there was something plain and pure about him, something true and uncomplicated, something steady, which under the right circumstances could be lifted like a jewel from a dark crevice. And it probably wouldn't cost the earth for Colin to knock him up a suit and some pyjamas, give him something to do with that enormous pair of scissors. Before going to bed himself, it occurred to Mr Baxter that the man sleeping quietly in his bad back bedroom might wake up and kill him. But then he was only a boy, just a tired weight in an old man's arms. And there's something sacred about sleep, Mr Baxter thought nature's way of saving us from ourselves. And, as he'd pointed out to Colin earlier, the back bedroom was already made up, as though the whole thing had been arranged long ago. When Mr Baxter woke in the late afternoon, it was clear that the young man had tried to make the bed before he left. It wasn't a bad job. The sheets were pulled up but not even, and there were creases and dents as though he'd sat back down on it for a while to think. Mr Baxter stirred a pot of tea and looked out the window, past the old cheese shop and into Newen Lingwood, where several mannequins looked dumbly into the street, their limbs divided with lines and numbers. Mr Baxter went for his walk, as usual, but without his coat. On his way home, he stopped into one of the less expensive men's outfitters on German Street, where he purchased a lovely, full-length, double-breasted winter coat with brass buttons. When the shopkeeper insisted that Mr Baxter try it on, try it on, to prove that it simply wasn't going to fit over his enormous frame, Mr Baxter growled at him, Mind your own business! When he got home, he hung the coat on the back of the door. He made a pot of tea and then drank it hot, admiring the coat. Then all the shops began to close. Another day was almost over. 
Men with briefcases and umbrellas hurried home to their wives and children. The radio said that snow was finally coming, that London would be thick with it by morning. Mr. Baxter imagined it, the hard cold broken into tiny pieces, brightness falling and filling the corners of an old city, and then for a day or two after, the language of footprints, the braille of human desire. After listening to the six o'clock news, Mr. Baxter tied on his old apron and then reached into the highest cupboard for a bag of flour. On his way home that day, he'd popped into Wilton's and persuaded the chef to sell him a couple of fish. But the chef just strangely winked and gave them to him. And at the small, bustling Tesco Metro supermarket on the corner of German Street, Mr. Baxter picked out some round Jersey potatoes, a pot of cream, and a bunch of chives. The good thing about fish pie, he thought, is that it keeps. But somehow, he knew it wouldn't go to waste, and as it bubbled in the blazing oven and the sky split in a fury of silent falling, Mr. Baxter opened every window in the house, for the greater hunger that filled London was no longer his own. So that's the... that's... Oh, ah, thanks. Thanks very much. That's nice. Thank you. I feel like you're... Uh, um, so that, that story is a, a full chapter from the new book, which, of course, the man who held the gun into someone's mouth um, is responsible for the child being left under the bridge in Paris. So the book works on the idea that, you know, in weird, strange ways, we're connected, maybe not, you know... Um, Oh, I don't know what I'm saying. I suppose that's why I wrote the book, to try and figure it out. Um, it's funny, reading from the, uh, the, the old novel, reading from any of my books, it's like, it's, it's a, there's a certain amount of shame involved because, you know, I feel very lucky to, to be a writer, but um, I don't know, with old work, I can see the holes. You know, I can see the problems. I know where, which parts, I know where there's thin ice. I know where I shouldn't read because I could fall through. Um, so in the new book, you know, I'm, I'm, I see it less, but I know in years to come, I'm going to see the problems that I don't see now. Does that make sense? So, thanks. thank you very much. If anyone has any questions. One or two questions, if, if there are any. Sure. That's what I love. Not, as they say at town meeting. Um, thanks, Simon. Thanks. Thanks.